need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. So far in our journey through the book of Exodus, we have seen um, typologies and pictures Here's a, here's a picture right here. It's, I'm going to go bag a deer after this. So it's like... <laughs> Pictures, illustrations that point to the conditions of the lost and then the victory of our Redeemer in Christ. And Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. The rituals, the Sabbath, the law of Moses, the feasts, all those things point to the person of Jesus. Yeah, Dave, but we're not there yet. So here you are pointing out typologies before that. Well, because Paul also says, 1 Corinthians 10.1, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, All ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. So we just went over how there uh, at the the rock there at Horeb that that, uh, Moses struck the rock in order to bring water. And here Paul tells us that rock that he struck is Christ. And so we're able to see these typologies here. We're able to see that Moses is a type of Christ. We're able to see that Pharaoh is a type of Satan. We're able to see that Egypt is a type of the world. And we're able to see that Israel is a type of the sinner in bondage. And we're able to see that Israel is delivered by the lamb at Passover, which is a type of the sinner being delivered by the lamb, Jesus, at the cross when Christ was crucified. Now redeemed and saved and delivered by the blood of the lamb, Their foe, Egypt, is now defeated, buried at the Red Sea, representing baptism and the old life gone, and you rise in your new life with God. Israel now has a journey to the promised land, which requires faith in God, that he will provide for them, that he will take care of them. It's the same with us today. We have been redeemed, delivered from from death by the blood of the Lamb. Satan is also a defeated foe. We also are baptized to show our old life is crucified with Christ. And we arise out of the water in newness of life in Christ. And we also have a journey to get to the promised land as well. It's called heaven. And we also need to have faith in God, that God's going to provide for us along the way and take care of us along the way. And the trials that we encounter is there to make us Christ-like by the time we get there to heaven. And so now we're going to see another part of the Christian life that God has called us to. And it's, it's the part that when we look at it, we, as a guy, you kind of like, I kind of like this one. All right. God has called us to fight. He's called us to fight. Now, if you recall last time, Israel camps here at Rephidim and there's no water. And so Moses strikes the rock and water comes rushing out. Another typology here of the rock of Horeb, rock is Christ, the strike is judgment, water is eternal life spoken of in the way of the Holy Spirit. And so in Romans 8, 9, it says, 
but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you don't have the spirit of God inside of you, it's for one reason and one reason only. You have not received Christ. You have not received what Jesus has done for you on the cross. If you have, then the Holy Spirit is inside of you. In Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him, meaning Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is a guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So if you receive Christ, Holy Spirit is inside of you, you have eternal life, and that is the guarantee that you're going to make it to heaven, the Spirit is inside of you. So now that we have received Christ, the Holy Spirit is living inside of you, you've been called to something. And one of the things you've been called to is to fight. Look what it says here in Exodus 17.8. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel in Rephidim. <clears throat> now who is Amalek? Well, in Genesis 36, verse 12, we're told that Amalek is the grandson of Esau. Now Timnah was a concubine of Eliphaz, Esau's son, and she bore Amalek to Eliphaz. And so Esau has a son named Eliphaz, and, and he has a concubine named Timnah, and Amalek was their son, so thus Amalek is a grandson of Esau. Now in Genesis 36, we're told in verse 16 that he is chief Amalek. Chief Amalek. The word chief here is a Hebrew word, aluf, and it means duke. And a duke is also a military commander. And so this would indicate how they would grow as a nation. It would be by military conquest. This is exactly what Isaac prophesied about Esau. In Genesis 27, verse 39, it says, Then Isaac his father answered and said to him, Behold, your dwelling shall be of the fatness of the earth and of the dew of heaven from above. By your sword you shall live. So Esau lived by the sword. Military conquest. Amalek is one of the tribes of the Edomites. Edom, the Edomites come from Esau. And so here they are attacking Israel. The word Amalek means dweller in the valley. Now, here's a map here of where Amalek dwelt, okay? He's over on this side right here. You have um, the mountains, uh, you have the uh, shore wilderness right here. Shore is a wall. You have these mountains here, mountains of Seir, okay? And this is where Amalek dwelt, right here uh, on, on the east side of the mountain range, over in this area right here, okay? We have... The Israelites either uh, over here somewhere or somewhere along this line when Amalek comes to attack, okay? And so, again, the Amaleks are descendants of Esau. Um, now, the question is, why? Why are they coming to attack Israel? Well, we have another verse in Deuteronomy that gives us a little bit more of what's going on at this time that we haven't read about so far. And here in Deuteronomy 25, verse 17... Moses tells the people, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt, how he met you on the way, attacked your rear ranks and all the stragglers at your rear. And when you were tired and weary and he did not 
fear God. When did this happen? Most likely from the time of the wilderness of sin coming to Rephidim. And so now that they come and camp in Rephidim, they come under attack. We're going to look at that here in a moment, but that is kind of Satan's strategy when it comes to attacking us. In verse 9 of Exodus 17, it says, And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out, fight with Amalek. Tomorrow we'll stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, fought with Amalek and Moses and Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now this is the first mention of Joshua. Joshua is Moses' second in command, very important figure in the Bible. He's mentioned over 200 times in the Bible. Joshua was born in captivity there in Egypt. And his, and his initial name was Hosea. Okay, And then we find out later on that Moses changes his name to Joshua in Numbers chapter 13, verse 8 and 16. Now the word Joshua here in the Hebrew, Yehoshua, means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. Yehoshua is the equivalent of Iesus in the Greek, okay, to which we get Jesus in the English. Joshua is Moses' servant at first, then his assistant. Later on, we'll be, we'll be able to see here that he's the one that's going to lead Israel into the promised land after Moses dies. This shows that it is God's policy to make a man a faithful servant before he leads. This is what we look for here at Calvary Castle Rock. We look at somebody who is humble, that is just faithfully serving, doing what God's called them to do. And then we come alongside usually and just say, hey, I, th- I see God moving in your life. How would you like to do this, oversee this here at this church? Because we see that in order for someone to be a leader, he must be first a good servant of what it is that God has called him or her to do. So Moses sends Joshua out to fight Amalek. And Moses goes on top of the hill to oversee the battle with the rod of God in his hand. This is the first time that Israel is seen in conflict with an external enemy. All up into this point, God has been doing things for Israel. All the way up into this point, God is the one that has been fighting all the battles for Israel. Okay? Now we get to a place where God says, okay, now you got to do something. You got to do a little something, something. Okay? And so in Exodus 14, 13, we see this when, um, when, the, uh, when Egypt is breathing down their necks and uh, they're at the Red Sea. We see in verse 13 of Exodus 14, it says, And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you, and you shall hold your peace. But now God tells Moses, Choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Before this, God is just fighting for Israel, and now God is going to fight through Israel. And I believe this brings us another type or picture of God's word. Jesus battled for us. All up until the time that you received Christ, Jesus did everything for you, okay? Jesus is the one that um, he was the one that battled for you. He is the one that led the perfect life. He did that for you. 
he also voluntarily went upon the cross for you and for me. He's the one that did battle with the powers and principalities as he gave up his life as a perfect sacrifice on the cross. Jesus already did this battle and he made a way for you to go to heaven. The battle is now complete. He has done all that for you. And when you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit comes inside of you in order for you now to have victory as you fight the flesh. I would submit to you that Amalek is a type of the flesh. And when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, guess what happens? A battle begins. Where God is there with you, you now have the Holy Spirit, and if you allow the Holy Spirit to lead and guide you, you are now being called to fight the flesh. Before that, there was no fight. When your flesh said to do something, you just went and did it. There's no battle going on. And so, for the first time, you now have a battle. You have the old nature, still wants to do what it's always done, but now you have a new nature. Now, I've heard people um, say this before. I've had other people ask me or more or less confront me and say things. Nowhere in God's word does it say that we get a new nature, that there's two natures or this, that, the other thing. Oh, 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 contraire. Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm not going to say you're wrong, but God's word will. 2 Peter chapter 1. First one, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, which you did not have before, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Right there, the apostle Peter tells us That when you receive Jesus, guess what? You now partake in the new divine nature, meaning you didn't have that before. But now you have a new divine nature, which I would submit to you is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. And this new nature we get to partake in is the Holy Spirit, and and God is going to use that in order to fight against the flesh. This new nature wants to do what God wants you to do. And so we do. We have this, this battle now that we never had before. I want you to go, to go to Galatians chapter 4, verse 20 and 25. In Galatians chapter 4 here, Paul is going to tell us about the two new covenants, or the two covenants, the old and the new. And he's going to use um, symbolism here. 
And so here in verse 21, it says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by the bondwoman, the other by a free woman. And he who was of the bondwoman was according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through the promise. So Abraham and Sarah had gotten a promise from God saying, hey, you're going to have a son. But after many years, they're kind of going, eh, maybe God needs some help. So Sarah, let me make this clear. It was Sarah's idea. Hey, why don't you go into my maidservant, Hagar, and maybe that she will get pregnant and then she will have a son. Now, Abraham's gone, okay, you know, he didn't put up any fight. Bad idea. But here they are using spiritual rationality, saying, let's help God with his promise. Really? If there's one thing God doesn't need help with, it is fulfilling his word. We just have to wait. We just have to wait. So they do this, and so Hagar gets pregnant, has a son, Ishmael, and they're going, oh, this must be God's promise, you know. But here... One is called the bondwoman, one is called the free woman. And it says here in verse 23, but he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. That's Hagar. You did it on your own. These are, this was a fleshly work that you did. And so Hagar and Ishmael, right there, that is according to the flesh. But there is a free woman through the promise, and that was Isaac, and that was Sarah. Now notice what it says here which things are symbolic. So these two women are going to represent two things, okay? They're going to represent the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, okay? But understand this is symbolic, all right? And so for these are the two covenants. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to the bonded, which is Hagar. So this is... The uh, covenant, uh, uh, the old covenant, one of the flesh. And so it says here, the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. This is Judaism. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, meaning on earth. This is speaking of religious Judaism. And is in bondage with her children because they're under the law. Because they're under the law. But the Jerusalem above is free. Ah, there's another Jerusalem. Besides the earthly one, there's a heavenly Jerusalem. Above is free, which is the mother, which is the mother of us all, meaning the new covenant. Okay? As a mother to us all, it gives birth to new children of God through the new covenant of the person of Jesus Christ. This is why it goes on, and they they quote here from Isaiah 54 1: Rejoice, O barren. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Where there were no children, there are now many children of God through the new covenant. Now, there's a a cult out there uh, called the Church of God. And this is the Church of God that will will come knocking on your door and, uh, and talk about the mother God, mother God, mother God. And you're going, what are you talking about? 
And they will bring you to here and they will show you that this new Jerusalem, this new Jerusalem is actually a person in heaven and it's mother God. And they will point to this mother of us all. And you just want to go, okay, hold on. First, let's back up. You want to read something in context. Notice it says here, these things are symbolic. This isn't to be taken literally, okay? Um, and so again, what is being spoken of here is that the mother of all means that, that this new covenant has given birth to all the new children of God that have received Christ in the new covenant. That is what's being spoken of here. Now, as we continue to read on, we read something very fascinating. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. So this is what verse 54.1 is talking about. Through Isaac, because through that new covenant, we are children of promise. Verse 29, but as he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him, Isaac, who was born according to the flesh, even so it is now. So if Ishmael is of the flesh and Isaac is of the spirit, we see the flesh now persecuting the spirit. We see the the old nature persecuting the new nature. There's going to be a fight. There is going to be a battle. The interesting thing is, is that he's quoting here from Genesis 21, verse 9, where it says, And Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing, scoffing at Isaac. Ishmael is scoffing at Isaac. The word scoffing here in the Hebrew is sahak, and it means to laugh, to mock, to make sport of. It's a play on word on Isaac's name, because here we have Yisak, meaning laughter. And so the verb here that is being used, the word speaks of laughter that is done in bad taste. Ishmael is now mocking Isaac. Here we have a play on words because of of Isaac's name. And so basically, in a negative sense, Ishmael is Isaacing Isaac, is what that means. And so Paul confirms here in Galatians 4 that Ishmael actually persecutes Isaac. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. Even so, it is now. The flesh is always going to persecute, is always going to war against the spirit. And soon as you receive Jesus, look out. That is what Satan uses. He uses your flesh, your old nature to attack you, to get you to stumble. It's interesting that there was no fighting when they were in the house of Egypt. They were not even allowed to fight the Egyptians, but once the manna that speaks of Jesus as the bread of life and the rock being spitten, typifying Jesus being crucified, and the water flowing out, typifying the Holy Spirit and new life, it is now, as Amalek comes to typify the old nature of the flesh, which is controlled by Satan, that we're now called to fight. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. In 2 Timothy 2.3, it says, You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier. Soldiers fight of Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4.6, this is what Paul said at the end of his life. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. All through the New Testament, we're told that we're in a fight, and it's a fight against our sin nature. Go over here to... Romans 7. As I pop another lozenge into my mouth. 
Romans 7. Think about this conflict worn inside our members, you know. Romans 7, verse 13. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not, but sin. That it might appear sin was producing death in me through what is good, so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. What I hate, that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For the will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do. But the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, Remember, it says in Galatians that as you walk with the Lord, that the inward man is growing day by day, and the outward man is what? Perishing. That's our hope in our walk with the Lord, okay? That you don't become super Christian overnight. I have the Holy Spirit. I'll never sin again. Liar face. But you're going to learn along the way, okay? And, And hopefully over time, yeah, that outward man is perishing, but the inward man is being built up. Day by day, that new nature is being built up. I don't even know where it was. Okay, verse 22. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. That's how I got there. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. O wretched man that I am. Not was. O wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, the next verse tells us. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself, with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. I think this is very interesting, and it's a good segue for you to go over here to Romans chapter 12 now. Go over here to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12 Verse 1, Paul begins with the strongest language he can possibly use to get our attention. What he is about to say here is a bomb in your understanding of who you are before God. And so he says, I beseech you, please listen, I'm begging you, is what he's saying. Please listen what I'm about to say is what he's saying here. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. I'm going to stop right there for a moment. It is reasonable since God created you. He knows what's best for you. Seems reasonable. He made you. He created you. 
and he made you and created you for a purpose, we should probably listen to him. We should probably, it's reasonable to come to that conclusion. God made me. We're told all through the scriptures that he knows every detail about me, knew me as I was being formed in my mother's womb, knows the very number of hairs on your head, and so he, he's very detailed. He knows everything about you. He knows you better than yourself, way better than yourself. It would seem to me, if God says, David, I want you to go left, I probably should go left because he also wants what's best for me. And so it's reasonable to present my body a living sacrifice, which is a daily sacrifice, by the way, that I lay myself down on the altar and I meet with him through prayer and reading of the word every day and throughout the day. Continue that communication. And he says it's reasonable that you do that. And here's another thing. Don't be conformed to this world. But be transformed with the renewing of your mind. That you may prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. Now, we need to have a renewing of our mind. We're not to conform to this world. We're not to agree with the philosophies of the world that lead you away from God. I love philosophy when I was in college. I, I was going to minor in it, took a lot of philosophy classes. And, and, and when you take philosophy 101, the very first uh, philosopher they introduce you to is Rene Descartes. And so, um, and then they show you to the most brilliant understanding of any philosophical thought that has ever been spoken. And they start there with Descartes, I think, therefore I am. Mind blowing. <laughs> but they would say that is the greatest philosophical thought to which then everything else you can go from there. And I remember in class, and I remember things, I go, wow, that's powerful. That's profound. I think, therefore I am. And it speaks of who I am, and that's how I know I'm alive because I think. And I. But when I've come to Christ, I realize how ridiculous that is. I have a different philosophy now. God spoke, therefore I am. That's my philosophy now. My philosophy is not of the world. And there's this deconstruction that I've done with the world since I've come to know Christ. That I'm not adhering to that philosophy anymore because God's word says something different. And that's my worldview now. And it's through the renewing of my mind through the word of God, which I'm going to lay myself down each and every day upon that altar so I can prove what is the good and acceptable perfect will of God. Remember, there's this battle between flesh and spirit. Whatever you feed more is going to win out. It reminds me of Desert Storm, the, 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 the battle that we had with Iraq. It wasn't really much of a battle. But there is a strategy that was involved there that was just brilliant. It's what you try and do at every uh, military conquest and everything else. And that is that for six to eight weeks, we did nothing but bombard 
you know, uh, the Iraqi army. They're in their foxholes and everything else, and we would just bombard them. And we cut off absolutely zero communications for six to eight weeks. They had zero communication. They couldn't, uh, uh, they couldn't communicate with their superiors. They're all alone in these foxholes. They had no idea what was going on in the war effort. They had no idea what was going on in the world. They had no idea what was going on at home. And on top of that, we cut off all, uh, all supplies going to their men in the front lines. So their morale was down. They're weak. They were hungry. And they had no communication. So by the time our army went into the field, they were giving up left and right. You know why? They're weak. That's why. They weren't six to eight weeks before that, but they were after six to eight weeks of cutting those things off. It's the same thing with our spiritual life. We need to cut off those things that feed the flesh. We need to cut those things off. We need to let go of them, and we need to build up the spirit. We're told here in Deuteronomy 25, 17, again, remember how Amalek attacked you on the way to Egypt. They attacked your rear ranks, all the stragglers at your rear, and when you were tired and weary, and they did not fear God. This is the the devil's attack as well. He wants to weaken you. He sees who, who is weakened, and that's who he goes after, those who are tired and weary of doing what it is that God has called them to do. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we're told, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The word sober here means to abstain from wine, yes, but it also means to be calm, means collective in spirit, be watchful, be temperate. In other words, have moral awareness. Have moral awareness. To be vigilant, Gregorio is the Greek word there, is to keep awake, be vigilant, to watch, give strict attention to. In other words, you need to be watching for something or someone, and you need to be seeing where Satan is attacking you. Have you ever, I know all of you probably have seen Animal Planet. I love Animal Planet. I love all documentaries of of animals and insects and things like that. I wish they would actually do a documentary of how you get those little cameras on an ant to be able to go through the ant hole there. How do you get it on the cobra as it's going around? I want to see that documentary, you know? But if you ever see a documentary on lions, they're always looking. And when the zebra sees the lion, the lion doesn't go after that zebra because it sees him. He knows where he's at. The lions are looking for the zebra that doesn't really know they're there. They're not watchful. They're not vigilant. And that's where the lion springs from the surprise attack. And we see that with us as well. He's looking for those who are not being watchful. So he can devour them. So he could devour them. It's interesting when you aren't feasting on the word and you're not in communion with God and you're not in prayer and all you drift. You drift. Peter did this. This is how he denied the Lord three times. All three synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke tell us the same thing. He followed Jesus at a distance. In Mark 14, 54, but Peter followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. 
He warmed himself at the enemy's fire. He found himself there. And so what does he do? He denies the Lord three times. Peter fell behind. Satan picked him off. He was in a place where he couldn't hear from God at all. Peter was too far away, and this is what happens to our old nature. And what about our old nature? Does it go away? Does it change? No. However, little by little, it will get weaker if you don't feed it. And you feed the Spirit instead. When Jesus was baptized and then he was led up by the Spirit in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, it says in verse 3 of Matthew 4, Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus gives strength by the word of God. It's not going to be the bread that gives him strength. He gets his strength from the word of God. Another time, Jesus is very fatigued. He's exhausted. And he's going through Samaria. And he stops at the Samaritan well there. And he sends the disciples into town to get supplies and things like that. So he's by himself, but it actually says he's exhausted. When all of a sudden the Samaritan woman comes up, he begins to minister to her. And then she goes back to be able to tell people in town of this amazing uh, man that she met that, that told her everything about herself. And she's going to get them to come to uh, confront him to see if this is the Christ. Could this be the Messiah? In the meantime, it says in verse 31, his disciples urge him. They come back. They saw him ministering. And it says, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And they're thinking, man, did anybody give him a Snickers when we were gone or what? What do you mean? Are you holding out on us, Jesus? You you stuffing things in your pockets? He says, therefore, the disciples said, has anyone brought him anything to eat? He said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. One of my um, thing, blessed things that I get to do all the time, and, I, and, and today's a, a perfect example of that. You know, when I got up this morning, not a good morning, hacking and wheezing, coughing up phlegm, not feeling so great, and just thinking the whole time, Lord, I know this verse, my grace is sufficient for you. My wife was also sick, but she did four nights doing a Christmas tea at Horizon Christian Fellowship this last week. Prayed over her. She prayed over me. We kept praying for each other. Lord, give us strength. You know, give us strength. You know, when, when I'm weak, you are strong, you know. And so we, we get our strength from doing the word of God and having a really good cough drop. But our nap, <laughs> you rely upon the Lord and you just say, okay, it's, you know, Lord, I know you want me to do this. And, and there's sometimes, yeah, you're sick, get, get Danny, get John, get somebody else to teach for you, that, that, that can happen. But there's other times that you just know, God's just saying, no, I want, I want you to do this. I want you to do this. And my food is to do the will of him who sent me in to finish his work. And you get strength from that. You get strength from the word of God. I want you to go to Luke chapter 6. Now, Luke chapter 6, this always, um, this always has a, a, a really soft spot in my heart. It, it, it really speaks to my heart. Um, this is an area of scripture that God brought me to when I wasn't walking with him, but I was professing him, you know, and uh, this is what God spoke to me 
one time when I was just casually going through his word. In verse 46, he begins, says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? Right there, it's like you're in this, you're in this room by yourself. That's the only thing that you see, and you know you have direct audience with God. And I remember reading that going, oh, no, this is not going to be good. This is Dave being taken to the woodshed right here. God is speaking right now. I'm hearing him clearly. He says, whoever comes to me and hears my sayings and does them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep, laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream beat vehemently against that house and could not shake it for it was founded on the rock. But he who heard and did nothing. That's right there, hit me again. I know that that was for me. I've heard, but I'm not doing anything for the Lord. It's like a man who built a house on the earth without a foundation against which the stream beat vehemently and immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It, was long, it wasn't long after that that, uh, yeah, my, my life went south very quickly. Went downhill. Um, you know, I was, uh, my girlfriend had broken up with me. My uh, truck broke down and I was getting sued at work. Kind of sounds like a country western song, but it, it, I didn't have a dog that died. But other than that, this is like just weeks after reading this, and this is what came to my mind. Hard times are upon you. How you doing with that? Not good. I'm miserable. This is ridiculous, you know. And it sent me seeking the Lord, which is a good thing. It's a really good thing. I would still profess to people I was a Christian. But it had no power when I did that. This last week, I was up in uh, Minot, uh, North Dakota, teaching at Calvary Chapel Minot, and Bill Smith has a great ministry going on up there. And he was just explaining to me someone that he was ministering to, and he says, you know, you agree with all the things of, of what Christ say, you just haven't embraced him yet. And I'm going, oh, man, that hits it right there. That's where I was. Even though I was a believer, I was saved. I was in agreement. I I didn't embrace Christ. Okay. And so some of you here this morning, that might be your understanding. Yeah, I agree with everything. Okay. But you haven't embraced him. You're not a doer. You haven't built your, your, your house upon the rock of the person of Jesus Christ by being a doer of the word of God. And so, again, it's when you're a doer of the Word of God, when you're praying, you're reading, you're, and, and, and you're in that devotion time, and you're, and you're applying what you read to your life. i got to do these things. Lord, give me the strength through your Holy Spirit. And, and you start walking that walk. That's when you're building your house upon the rock. And, yeah, difficulties are going to come. But you know what the Word of God says, and you know what it is that you're supposed to do. And you wait on the Lord. And you fight. And you fight the enemy. And you make sure he doesn't trip you up so you bring disgrace and dishonor to God. So how do you feed the flesh? Well, don't put in front of your eyes anything fleshly. Don't be reading things that are fleshly. You know, um, when I say do not put fleshly things in front of your eyes, you know, um, there are things that you can put in front of your eyes that's going to make you lust more. There's things that you can read that's going to make you lust more. See, men like pornography, we want to see that right away. 
Women, you love trashy novels, romance novels. And so you, you, you engage in that fantasy and everything else. I have never once met any man that has said, hey, have you read this trashy romance novel? <laughs> Ever. No, it takes too long to get there. No, I want to see it. But it's the same thing. God knows this. Satan knows this. And because it doesn't have pictures and some words and they're flowery, they're not really gross, but it makes you still think something you shouldn't be thinking. It's the same thing. And Satan knows that. And so you don't read things, you don't watch things, you don't bombard yourself with worldly philosophies. You take those things away. You keep people, we keep each other accountable. And understand this, there's a huge difference in who you hang out with. In 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And when you become a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes it does mean saying no to friends, saying no to people because you're not strong enough yet to go there to be a light and a witness. And you know if you go there with them, you're going to participate with them. There's nothing wrong with hanging out with the ungodly. We're told to do that. It's the only way you can be a light and a witness. But when you hang out with the ungodly, it's for that purpose, to be a light and a witness. And if you can't hang out with them, I don't care if it's family, I don't care if it's your bestie. If you can't hang out with them and be a light and a witness, then you're not supposed to hang out with them until you get stronger in the Lord. And instead, invite them to the things that you're doing. Invite them to church. That'll really blow their mind when you first come to Christ. But we are to be a light and a witness. I'm not saying do not rub elbows with the ungodly, but if you want to grow in your faith, you have to hang out with faithful people. If you want to be a godly person, you have to hang out with godly people. And so you can do that here at church. You could do that in a community group. Godliness is contagious. We read in Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so does a man sharpen the countenance of his friend. We glean from one another. So why does Satan attack? Well, a few teachings ago, I've talked time and time again as we've been going through Exodus, that being saved from something is not the same as being saved for something. And so when you come to Christ, it's awesome. You're saved from hell and the penalty of death and all that, but you're also saved for something. When it came to the Israelites, it's guess what? I'm going to save you from Egypt for what? To worship me, to serve me and worship me. It's the same. Today, you are saved for the purpose to serve and worship God. That's what we are saved for. And Satan attacks us in hopes that we'll do something to dishonor God, thus robbing God of his glory. It's interesting to me that if Satan can push your buttons, if he can wave temptations in front of you so you go off on your flesh that this brings dishonor to God. See, Satan can't do anything about your salvation. He can't take that away from you. It is rock solid. It was paid for at the cross. Nobody can change this, but he can hinder your witness so you will not be effective for the kingdom of God. This is why Satan spends more of his time with Christians trying to get them to dishonor God than he does with the unsaved world because he's already got them. There's nothing more he needs to do with them. He's on the prowl for us, 
not the unsaved. He already has them. He already has them. And so he will do whatever he can to make you dishonor God so you don't have a really good light or testimony to advance the kingdom of God. He wants you to dishonor God with your behavior. And so he's going to attack those who are weak. If you have a temper, anger issues, Satan knows that. He's going to push your buttons for all those kind of things. Whatever situation, whatever your weakness is, that's where he is prowling towards. Now we see uh, a victory in reading the word, doing the word, fellowshipping with other believers. And now we also see victory when it comes through prayer. Look what happens here in Exodus 17 verse 10. In order to fight Amalek, Moses goes on the top of the hill to oversee the battle, the rod of God in his hands. And it says in verse 10, So Joshua did as Moses said to him, fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, Hur went up on the top of the hill. So it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. Lifting his hands, this is a posture of prayer. The Israelites generally stood when they prayed. Psalm 28.1 says, To you I will cry, O Lord, my rock. Do not be silent to me, lest if you are silent to me, I become like those who go down to the pit. Hear the voice of my supplication when I cry to you, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Psalm 63.4, Thus I bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Here in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. This posture that Moses is doing shows intercession in the way of prayer. And the power to make those tools work for victory is prayer. You have to spend time with God. You can't just go out and fight. You have to get your marching orders from the Lord. What is it I'm supposed to do? You need to sit before him. There has to be a time in which you pray. I want you to go to Matthew chapter 6. Go over here to Matthew chapter 6. It's interesting to me that the disciples never ask Jesus how to preach. How to use the gifts. No, they asked how to pray. And the first thing we notice here is that, and when you pray, verse 5, you shall not be like the hypocrites. The first thing that Jesus says when it comes to prayer is don't do this. Before he says what to do, he first says don't do this. And I would submit to you, the reason he does that is because that's what the Pharisees were doing. That was their example. And he's saying, don't be like them. Don't do this. For they love to pray, stand in the synagogues, on the corners of the streets. They may be seen by men. Surely I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. When you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Hey, you know, um, group prayer, that's fine. Praying with other people, that's fine. But you know what the Lord really wants is you praying with him. He wants that one-on-one. He wants that one-on-one with you. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your father knows the things that you have need of before you ask him. If you already knows, why why do you need to ask? To show your humility that all good things come from him, okay? And so this manner, therefore, pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I love this. I love this. He says, look how many times it says, your Father, your Father, in verse 6 and verse 8 as well. And then he says, you can, you can call him 
our Father. Father! There's no more intimate word to be given to you as a child of God than to be able to say, my Father. Father, 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 Father. I love that when my kids were growing up. Dad, you'd hear that, Dad. And I would hear that everywhere, Dad. And I immediately turned. I loved hearing that word, that intimacy that my ki- only my kids can say that. And now it's, Dad. They're like, all right, not really the same. But I have grandsons now. And now I hear the word Papa. Oh, man, I don't care what's going on. When I hear Papa, I go, whoa. I love that. And I think God himself loves it when we say Father. he's, He's all ears. He wants to hear that. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. When we pray, we're carrying out the will of God. It's not my will to be done. It's his will to be done. We're asking forgiveness of our sins. We bring praise and respect. Hallowed be thy name. We ask for the necessities of life. Give us this day our daily bread. We want to do his will, not our will. We ask for strength, boldness, to persevere in in, in trials. It's here we ask for deliverance from temptations. Let's see where the evil one is. Give us strength through that. And we try to, as in prayer, listen to God. One of the best things you can do in prayer is in your time of prayer saying, okay, Lord, speak to me. What do you want me to pray for? I have my list over here, but what do you want me to pray for? I want your will to be done. And then he'll start speaking of things to pray for that aren't on your list. And then he'll tell you to pray for something and you go, ooh, I had that on my list. And then as he's revealing his will to you, you're kind of going, yeah, I'm not going to pray for that other thing on my list, <laughs> you know. And, and, and you get to learn with God. This is why Paul would say in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. It's not just in the morning or that time you spend with him. You, you continue that dialogue throughout the day. And then in verse 12 of Exodus 17, we see that sometimes you need help in prayer. Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone, put it under him. He sat on it, and Aaron and Ur. Her supported his hands, one on one side, one on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. I think I forgot verse 11 here. When he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. This is very simply stated this when You stop praying, guess what? You're going to lose. You're going to lose. And so sometimes we need, we need help here, you know. We know in Ephesians chapter 6 that we do not wrestle against uh, flesh and blood, what do we wrestle against? We wrestle against uh, principalities, against powers, rulers of darkness of this age, spiritual hosts, wickedness in heavenly places. As much as, it, you, you know, um, you, you, you're watching Lord of the Rings and you, you just love those kind of movies, bad guys, good guys, you know, things like that. And the fight is on and, and you're, you're all, you know, this would be so great. You know, to be a part of something like that where you can see the enemy and you know what's doing is right and all this kind of stuff. But our fight is not against flesh and blood. It requires us to pray. And that's where the battle is, is in the time of prayer. You're praying against spiritual wickedness, hosts, powers, principalities. Prayer is so important. It's so important. And so what is revealed here in verses 12 and 13 is that Aaron and her are lifting up Moses' hands. We do need to pray for one another. We need to come alongside. We need to pray for one another. We need to pray 
together. We see this in the early church in the book of Acts. We often see Christians praying in groups. Acts 2, 1 through 4, they're praying together in the upper room when they receive the power of the Holy Spirit. We see it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as they met for prayer in the temple. And then they met in private homes and they prayed together there. It's the same thing here. You know, we offer prayer after every service. I can't tell you how often you guys are shaking my hand as, as you go out. And as you do that, you say, oh, by the way, can you pray for me? <laughs> and I usually say no. You know why? Because there's people up here right now waiting for people to come down to pray for them. And then I usually will turn them around. I said, see that? I want you to go pray for them. Go, go down and let them pray for you. Okay? Because this is what the word of God tells you. We are, need to pray for one another. And we have it there. We also have the second Sunday of the month, uh, you know, that we, we do prayer and praise. We also uh, do prayer before every service. If you want to come a uh, half hour before service at 8.30, we're here praying. Uh, on Saturday night, we're praying at 4.30. You know, you're, you're invited to that. Come, pray with us. You know, we are called to pray for one another. And so when we feast upon the word and we're in prayer and our commander in chief, Jesus, and we're doing what he tells us to do, this is all good stuff. Verse 14 goes, then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book, recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. There will come a time when you're in the presence of the Lord and the flesh has no more control over you. But that's not today. And Moses built an altar, called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Your flesh is always going to be at war with you. And the only way you can have victory over it is through the Holy Spirit. The Lord is my banner, Hebrew word, Yahweh Nesi. It means the Lord is my banner. Uh, another name that God reveals himself, a banner is a military flag or standard. It's a piece of cloth with a military insignia raised on a pole. It's, it's, it's what soldiers would use to identify with and, and to identify to. Um, they would always look where that banner is and make sure that the fighting is most fierce there, that that doesn't get taken down. And so the Israelites are, are, are going to experience this. They had a battle with the Amalekites. And during this battle, from time to time, they're going to look up and see Moses holding that staff, a symbol of God's power and authority. And so they would be looking at that to see if it's, if it's still up. The Lord is my banner, Yahweh Nisi. In Psalm 121, verse 1, it says, I will lift up my eyes to the hills, for whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. In Isaiah 11, verse 10, it says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. Well, the, the, the root of Jesse is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the root of Jesse, the son of David, the son of God. In John 3, 14, Jesus said this of himself, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John 12, 32, and if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. He's that banner. He's that banner. We're going to end with this, but in Hebrews 12, 1, and two, it says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, aside, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with the endurance, the race that is set before us, 
looking unto Jesus. He's our banner, author, finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Guess what? We've been called to fight through the power of the Holy Spirit. We have given a new nature. Yes, you're going to battle sin, and yes, you're going to have this war within you. But what our hope is, as you continue to walk with the Lord, that that inward man would grow day by day, and the outward man would perish, little by little. Amen? Let's pray. Amen.